Tensions run high in the Texas House as lawmakers take on border security bills. It hurts us personally, bro. Could it just let us it hurts us. It. Just, just let us debate it. It hurts us to our core. And y'all don't understand that. The conflict and the questions about the legality of the plan to give law enforcement more power on the border. New concerns about anti-Semitic influences on Texas politics, the warning from the lieutenant governor, and his decision to redirect millions in campaign cash. Can a Texas judge refuse to marry gay couples? He has chosen to discriminate between some folks in the state of Texas in favor of other people. But others see it as a question of religious freedom. We look at the case playing out in the Texas Supreme Court. Produced from the Capitol in Austin and airing statewide, this is the award-winning State of Texas. Hello and thank you for joining us. I'm Josh Hinkle. Heated moments in the Texas House Wednesday fueled by debate over House Bill 4. The legislation would give law enforcement more power to arrest people who cross the border illegally. The tension reached a boiling point after House Republicans passed a motion to cut off additional amendments to the bill. Being attacked on a daily basis. They can't stand I've been on this sitting bill. there my whole time listening to y'all. That's Democratic State Representative Armando Wally voicing his frustration to Republican Representative Cody Harris. Harris authored the motion to cut off amendments to House Bill 4. More than 40 had been filed before the cutoff. Several Democrats hoped to change the bill, raising concern that HB 4, as written, would lead to discrimination. For Wally, the concerns hit close to home. I can't drive my brother, my cousin, Okay, I, I can't take cowards. them anywhere, bro. I can't go to a, I can't go to a border. I can't go to okay. I can't go to a baptism because my community is being attacked. Y'all okay. don't understand the okay. y'all do hurts our community. Okay. It hurts us personally, bro. Could it just let us? It hurts it. us. Just, just let us debate it. It hurts us to our core, and y'all don't understand that. Y'all don't live in our skin. Amid the tension, the House paused debate on the bill for more than two hours. When they started up again, debate lasted until early Thursday morning. The bill passed and now heads to the Senate. As we mentioned, House Bill 4 would give law enforcement in the state more authority to arrest people who enter Texas illegally. That power is currently reserved for federal law enforcement, and there are questions whether HB 4 would be legal. As Monica Madden reports, supporters believe the state needs to push forward despite those concerns. As migrant crossings at the southern border are hitting record highs, state lawmakers are looking to find their own solutions. House Bill 4 would make illegal immigration a state crime, giving Texas law enforcement officers the ability to arrest or deport undocumented immigrants. We have a major jurisdictional issue at the border. It's a power currently reserved for federal border patrol agents, but state Republicans say Texas needs more authority to curb border crossings. This is the strongest bill that we can pass in the state of Texas to put in place our own Remain in Mexico policy. The bill says these arrests could happen anywhere in the state, which is one of the issues for Democrats. It also impacts American citizens who can be arrested if they don't have proof of citizenship. Democratic Congressman Joaquin Castro echoes those concerns. If you came up to me on the street in San Antonio and demanded that I prove that I'm a citizen, aside from my driver's license, and by the way, a driver's license doesn't count, 
I would literally have no way on the spot to prove that. You can be arrested. Republican Congressman Tony Gonzalez supports the state's efforts to secure the border. Texans alone cannot solve this problem. We need to continue to keep the pressure on the, uh, the administration. Congress needs to do its part as well. But questions if House Bill 4 would be legal. This is a part where it gets muddied very fast. Uh, you've essentially outlaid the Border Patrol uh, agent's job. With everyone agreeing, this would likely get challenged if it becomes law. So I'm sure they're going to try to sue us over this, but the reality is we have to keep pushing. Monica Madden, State of Texas. The push to allow more arrests along the border comes at a time when the state's prisons face serious staffing problems. Last month, the Texas Department of Criminal Justice submitted its self-evaluation report to the Sunset Advisory Committee in preparation for the review cycle for the next regular legislative session. Investigator Dalton Huey joins us now. You've been digging into the data. What are some of the key takeaways? Yeah, so the overarching theme of the report centers around the ongoing issues that TDCJ is having with not just hiring, but retaining their employees. Um, the report claims they're operating at a critical staffing level, making it difficult for them to simply meet their mission. Uh, and then in addition to that, they are the second highest agency with turnover in Texas. Um, it specifically references correctional officers and mental health professionals as being their biggest issue with hiring and staffing at the moment. Um, and then the second major issue in the report is that the population of inmates in TCJ is projected to continue increasing over the next several years. So we've got a shortage of staffing and we've got more inmates in their facilities. The report referenced problems caused by staffing shortages, including security risks. What are some of those risks? Yeah, so the report generally references the fact that the staffing shortage is creating safety concerns for not just their staff, but the public in general. Um, we looked at Office of Inspector General annual reports since 2020, uh, found that year over year um, since then, Contraband being entered into the facilities has increased significantly. I believe it was 120% uh, in the last five years, um, in addition to criminal investigations and just simply calls for service. What is the agency doing to address the staffing issue and is it actually making any progress? Yeah, so the agency has recently had a lot of support from state lawmakers and this last legislative session. Um, in 2022, the state approved a salary increase for correctional officers um, across the board and then in the 88th legislative session um, a bill was passed once again to increase their budget for salary increases across the agency um, in addition to a to budget for improvements to facilities to their technology and so on. Uh, TDCJ told us that these efforts have been effective. Uh, the amount of hiring or the amount of openings that they've had has decreased. Their retention has gotten a little bit better but the report makes it very clear that uh, there's still a long way to go. All right, Dalton, thanks for keeping track of all this. A Texas judge says she won't marry same-sex couples. It's not unconstitutional to believe that marriage is between a man and a woman and for that view, for your belief to come from the Bible. She calls it religious freedom. Opponents say it's discrimination. We look at the case playing out in the Texas Supreme Court. The lieutenant governor calls out anti-Semitism in Republican and conservative groups. The move he's making now tied to a controversial campaign donation.
The Texas Supreme Court is deciding what to do about a Texas judge who refuses to marry same-sex couples. This is about Waco Area Justice of the Peace, Diane Hensley. She has refused for years to officiate marriages for same-sex couples. In 2019, the State Commission on Judicial Conduct disciplined Hensley, saying that refusal amounts to discrimination, violating her oath to uphold impartial justice. She filed a lawsuit arguing the state's religious freedom law allows her to adhere to her faith while practicing as a judge. On Wednesday, attorneys argued the case before the Texas Supreme Court. She has chosen to discriminate between some folks in the state of Texas in favor of other people. And it flies <clears throat> in the face of impartiality. It's not unconstitutional to believe that marriage is between a man and a woman and for that view, for your belief to come from the Bible. And it also shouldn't disqualify you from being an elective office or from being a judge. Capitol correspondent Ryan Chandler covered the case. Ryan, isn't the issue of gay marriage settled already by law? You would think so, Josh, dating all the way back to 2015 when the Supreme Court said gay marriage is legal in all 50 states. But what the defendants in this case are trying to do in front of the Texas Supreme Court is, is target, I think, two U.S. Supreme Court decisions. The first one is a case from earlier this year, actually, which allowed a Colorado web developer to refuse to work with gay couples, essentially uh, allowing her to refuse to make marriage websites for same-sex couples. They want to expand the reach of that and say that that kind of deference that they gave to the web developer should apply to this judge as well. But I think also they're going back to that 2015 Obergefell decision and, and trying to say that while they did legalize gay marriage, they left room in there for religious liberty. And if a judge in this case has a sincere objection to marrying gay couples, then that should not preclude them from doing their work as a judge. Now, normally when someone sues Texas, the Office of Attorney General represents the state, and that didn't happen this time though, why? Well, this is actually nothing new. The Attorney General has made his name by suing the Biden administration and the federal government chiefly, but another often forgotten but very important part of the Attorney General's job is to defend state agencies when they get sued. The Texas Tribune reports, though, that within the last two years alone, Ken Paxton has refused to represent state agencies 75 times. And a lot of those are on ideological grounds. Say, if a university is defending itself in an affirmative action case, or if another state agency is being sued by one of Paxton's political allies, he will simply refuse to represent them and make that state agency get private counsel. It's important to remember, though, that when that happens, the taxpayers are still paying for that representation. It's just with a private firm, uh, often for a price tag that may be even higher than uh, what uh, the Attorney General's office may cost the taxpayers for that counsel. Well, when can we expect a ruling in this case? I spoke to the lawyers about that this week. They say it, it could take some time, but they're hoping to have a resolution during this court's uh, term, which goes all the way until June. So we could be waiting on an answer here for a while. All right, Ryan, thank you very much. Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick makes a $3 million decision. How reports about anti-Semitic influences fueled a big move tied to a controversial campaign donation. Texas families losing options for childcare. We dig into the data to see what's behind the troubling trend.
Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick made a big move linked to a controversial campaign donation. Patrick announced his campaign would buy $3 million worth of Israeli bonds. That amount is significant. This summer, Patrick received $3 million in a donation and loan from the Defend Texas Liberty Political Action Committee. Earlier this month, the Texas Tribune reported leaders of the conservative PAC met with Nick Fuentes. He's a far-right commentator who has praised Adolf Hitler and denies the Holocaust happened. News of the meeting led to calls for Patrick and other elected Republicans to return money they accepted from Defend Texas Liberty. We told you how Patrick first said he planned to keep the money. He said leaders of the PAC told him they condemned Fuentes and portrayed the meeting as a one-time mistake. But new reporting calls that into question. Now Patrick is making a different statement. In a news release, the lieutenant governor said he learned there are other so-called Republicans who share these hateful beliefs and are trying to spread their anti-Semitic views within the GOP. He continued saying, every Republican group in the state, no matter how small or how large, including our state party, needs to root out this cancer, adding, those who are anti-Semitic are not welcome in our party. The news release ended with his vow to use $3 million in campaign cash to buy bonds for Israel. Concern over anti-Semitism in Republican and conservative groups came to light earlier this month after reporting by the Texas Tribune uncovered the meeting between Defend Texas Liberty leaders and Nick Fuentes. Robert Downen broke that story for the trip. He joins us now. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. What prompted you to look into this story? I mean, straightforward enough, we got a tip and I left about 3 a.m. from Austin to Fort Worth and kind of the rest is history. So. Well, Patrick has described Fuentes as an avowed anti-Semite, and he's praised Hitler, denied the Holocaust ever happened. Why would any pack meet with this guy? What does he bring to the table politically? You know, I think that's a good question. I mean, I, we have yet to get any kind of answer on that. Um, we have asked Defend Texas Liberty and its leaders, I mean, at this point, dozens of times probably for any kind of clarification. We have not received anything. I will say, though, you know, Nick Fuentes, his visit here comes as he has been embraced by other Republican Party officials. You know, Donald Trump last year had dinner with him at Mar-a-Lago, a meeting that was widely condemned by members of his own party. So, I mean, to, the idea that you know Nick Fuentes and his views were not well known when he took this meeting and was in Texas, I think is is hard to argue. And so I think it does beg the question: What benefit was there that these groups were getting for him from his visit? And uh, moreover, you know how normalized is his ideology in those camps that it didn't seem that to be you know something that was necessarily. Um, I guess a huge deal for them to be meeting with him. So your reporting found the Fuentes meeting wasn't the only example of anti-Semitism being linked to conservative political groups in Texas. How significant is that influence? You know, we've just in, the, in just this week put out a story showing that at least five former and current Fuentes associates and followers were either you know being hosted by or working directly with groups that are funded by Defend Texas Liberty, which you know, as you know, is a is a kind of the tip of the spear of this huge, massive, sprawling network of groups, nonprofits, and campaigns. And I mean, what we found is that this type of anti-Semitism is really not totally outside the norms within those camps. I mean, you have groups like True Texas Project, which really coordinates a lot of the grassroots work for this network. And they're, I mean, their leaders in 2019, after the El Paso Walmart shooting, said that they sympathized with the racist gunman who killed 22 people there. And they're still in those positions. On uh, Saturday, Matt Rinaldi, the chair of the Texas GOP, will be appearing at a softball game with them for a fundraiser. And so, you know, while Nick Fuentes is definitely the most public of these figures, I think it would be a mistake to ask, or, you know, act as if he is not 
kind of a, a part of a longer trend where of normalization of anti-Semitism and extremist rhetoric in those circles. You know, earlier in the program, we talked about the lieutenant governor announcing he would put campaign funds toward bonds for Israel. He did it after discovering other examples of anti-Semitism linked to Republican and conservative groups. Your reporting revealed those examples. How does that make you feel? I mean, you know, I, I think that, you know, I, I, I won't say whether I think it's a good or a bad step. I will say that, you know, we've had a lot of people who have reached out to us in the wake of his announcement on that saying, you know, it's, it's, we're glad that he is, you know, making a more, you know, coming out more strongly against this meeting and making some kind of, you know, I guess, uh, moves to reconcile his ties to this group. But again, there are also people who have pointed out, and I think probably, you know, fairly, that investing this $3 million is not redirecting it. It is not giving it away. It is still uh, essentially his money that he is gaining interest off of. So I think that the, the reaction from our end has been kind of a mixed bag between people who have said, you know, this is a good first step, but also has it gone far enough. All right, Robert Downen from the Texas Tribune, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. Childcare facilities closing in Texas. Why more could be at risk of closure without help? Our investigators dig into the data. Data from Texas Health and Human Services shows that over the last five years, nearly 27,000 children across Central Texas lost access to childcare. Our investigators analyzed the data and found that, that number is only growing as more childcare programs close. Arzo Dost talked to operators who worry there will be even fewer options for parents now that federal pandemic relief is ending. The sound of kids playing outside used to echo across this North Austin neighborhood. Now. It's just loud highway traffic. This is our Cielito Lindo, our beautiful sky. Maria Dominguez painted this mural when she opened Cielito Lindo Spanish Emergent Preschool, a home-based childcare center right before the pandemic. This was my dream. I had been a school teacher for many years, and then I was a school counselor. Dominguez survived the pandemic and was able to stay open using federal relief funds for rent, bills, and teacher pay. But she says that only went so far. In the summer, she had to close her doors. It was a very difficult decision when I decided I needed to close. And I thought about it for months. And I remember coming in, um, in the morning, the kids, oh my God. As they would come into, into the, the school, uh, they would run up to us and hug us. Data from the state obtained and analyzed by KXAN investigators shows from March 2018 to last month, nearly 1,400 childcare facilities closed in Central Texas for various reasons. For 61%, it was voluntarily, and that impacted nearly 27,000 children. We're going to see a, a trickle of closures over the next month. A Texas Association for the Education of Young Children survey in August found 26% of child care programs across the state are likely to close without more funding help. 43% are not sure. Those responses that came back revealed that uh, many child care programs are under-enrolled. They have empty classrooms. They're struggling to find staff. And things are going to get really tough as our federal relief funds 
um, that came through the various COVID relief packages start to dry up um, and with no funding um, in sight to kind of close the gap that will be left when those funds are um, fully expended. The association adds most closures have been among childcare homes like Dominguez's. Oh my God. She says even though it's hard to see the mural that would once greet the kids at drop-off. And I know it's going to go away. She's grateful she has a second location where she was able to move most of the students and her staff. I really, I have a lot of hope in people and especially those that are making decisions that they're going to see the, the problem that we have. We are literally the workforce behind the workforce. Arzo Dost for State of Texas. The state data also shows a striking imbalance between supply and demand. During a 10-year span, the number of children in Central Texas increased 14.3%. In that same time period, the number of child care operations decreased by 24.1%. So what can you do? Child care operators we've talked to say vote. Lawmakers placed a constitutional amendment on the November ballot to provide tax relief for child care centers. Child advocates say lawmakers also need to hear from families so they can better understand the struggles to find affordable programs. Thank you again for joining us for State of Texas. I'm Josh Hinkle. We'll be back next week to bring you an in-depth look at Texas politics.